Welcome to the Behind the Surface podcast presented by the International Surface Fabricators Association. ISFA exists to serve industry professionals involved in the fabrication of manufactured surfacing materials. With each episode, Behind the Surface inspires fabricators to take their business to the next level. Welcome to the latest episode of the Behind the Surface podcast. I'm your guest host, Ed Young. You may know me as the Fabricators Coach, where we believe that you deserve to have a business that not only makes you money, but also allows you time to enjoy it. You can check out free tools, articles, podcasts, and more at fabricatorscoach.com. Our topic today is the art of upselling, and we are really in, in great shape, we've got an awesome guest in Jeffrey Grand, who is the owner of the Countertop Factory. Jeffrey, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks, Ed. I appreciate it. I always love doing these podcasts. Super. I, I'm looking forward to learning a lot from you today. I think it's a, it's a great topic and something I think will be just uh, a huge benefit to folks who listen to it. It's hard to believe that folks may not know who you are because you, you've got a large presence in the industry, but for the in the unlikely event somebody's listening who doesn't know you, could you give us a little bit about yourself uh, and about what you do? Of course. So uh, a little over 18 years ago, my best friend and business partner, Bill Hoyer, and I started the Countertop Factory in a suburb of Chicago. We have since expanded to Arizona. And what we realized, you know, we were one of 10,000 fabricators across the country and needed some solutions that really weren't being provided. And so in 2015, uh, we started a company called Fifth Gear Technologies, really starting to develop software for ourselves, but realized that other fabricators also needed these solutions. Uh, and then out of Fifth Gear has borne some really cool products like Speed Label and Speed Folder and SpeedCAD. And then most recently, we just purchased uh, eTemplate, which is a digital measuring uh, company, been around since 1999, amazing technology. Uh, and we're really excited to kind of bring the sales and marketing force behind it. Uh, we have some really neat products that we're going to launch at Tice. Um, and then I've got a consulting business. Uh, again, I did not come from this industry, um, but like to take some of the business practices that I've learned in corporate America apply that uh, to this manufacturing business and really help fabricators make money, similar to what you like to try to do. And our consulting business really has focused on the sales side of things, which is probably a nice segue into why you and I are talking here today. Absolutely, certainly. Um, I've heard it said, and I think maybe you said it, that uh, upgrades are the most profitable aspect of the sale, for not just for countertops, but pretty much anything. What does that mean? So what ends up happening is there, there are a lot of products out in the market that are commodities. And I think the consumer is very educated these days and the consumer is intelligent and they have a lot of information at their fingertips. And so companies have to be appropriately to get the attraction of that customer. But once you get that customer, and I, use, I like to use cars as an example, once you get that customer on your lot and you've gotten them to drive that particular model car, 
you know how much money you're going to make. But now the win is to go sell them all of those upgrades. And, and that's where, if you ask a dealership, that's where they make a lot of their money. And it's the same thing for fabricators. And so we use this term called hot sauce, right? Hot sauce is that little bit extra you put on something that make it go good from great. And so upgrades are the hot sauce in our particular industry. So when we talk about upgrades, have you got some specific examples of types of upgrades? And then what's the financial impact of, of doing something like this? So what's really interesting is when we talk to people about upgrades, sometimes I get kind of these strange looks. And this is where I have to kind of step back a little bit and say, you know, you get upgraded every day of your life. You may not realize it. So let me give a few examples. Go through a drive through order a sandwich. And they ask if you want to supersize it. Go through a car wash. Do you want the basic? Do you want the super? Or for $2 more, you can get the ultra. Go to Starbucks. You order a coffee. They never ask if you want a short. They immediately go right to Vente, which is their fourth largest size, by the way. If you have traveled lately, right, you get on your app, you check in, and they say, hey, Ed, would you like some more leg room? And all you have to do is push the button, right? They've made it incredibly easy for you. And then my favorite is when you buy something online. I recently bought a TV. And when you're checking out, it says, hey, Jeffrey, would you like to buy the HDMI cord? Do you want the extended warranty? Uh, do you want the wall mount bracket? And, and so the reality of it is we get exposed to upselling all day long. We should be doing the same, giving our customers that same purchasing experience. So that's step one. You, you asked me some examples. 90% <clears throat> of the edge profiles that fabricators are producing today is an eased edge do you want to know why that is, Ed? Probably because it's the uh, easiest to sell. It is easy. <laughs> and it's free and it's cheap. And you know what? It looks good. What ends up happening is the countertop salesperson, you know, they're in the showroom with the customer trying to find a product that is going to fit the customer's budget and their needs, form and function. They go back and forth. They finally agree. The salesperson high fives the customer. Hey, we agreed on something, right? And then the customer has the nerve to say, hey, what about an edge? And so now the, the salesperson takes off their sales hat and puts on their, hey, I don't want to screw up the sale hat, and then points to the eased edge and says, hey, here you go. It's free and it looks nice. The reality of it is that is the worst thing that we can be doing. Many shops, whether they have CNCs or they have handheld routers or they have skilled craftsmen, have the ability to do upgraded edge profiles. And so when you sold that customer that countertop, the next piece is, hey, let's talk about the edge profile and let's upgrade them. It's a really easy one. There's another one that uh, I think has uh, a lot of people now are starting to utilize, and it's called the chip minimizer. And so 50% of the service calls that fabricators will have to provide two years post-sale is fixing chips in the customer sink cutout. And for all of you listening, if you go back to your sink, after this podcast and you look and you find those chips, I'm sorry that I disappointed you that you found those. Go find somebody to fix it. But the reality is that happens. And so the chip minimizer, right, is an opportunity for the fabricator to put a, um, let's call it a half bullnose edge on that profile. And so instead of being at 90 degree, they now have this curved profile and eliminates kind of those chips in the most frequently used part of the kitchen. We charge $250 for it. If you have a CNC, the cost is literally zero because the CNC is just going to use different bits. So there's a lot of different options and opportunities for fabricators to actually sell. 
I think we have our industry um, and, and, you know, everybody uses this pun, right? But we're still in the stone ages. I think we're really good at taking orders, but I don't think our industry has really excelled in selling. I would agree 100%. We are, uh, like you, I come from other industries before I got into this one 20 years ago. And looking at how shop owners sell, how salespeople take orders in this industry, first off, we're, we're a young industry. Uh, when I look at what's happened in the last 20 years in this industry, I, I'm amazed at what I see. We have come up the curve as an industry phenomenally well. We've still got a ways to go. And I think having professional salespeople probably is one of the largest opportunities in our industry. We've got way, way, way too many order takers. Um, and I think you, know, you talk about trip minimizer as an example. To me, that's, that, that seems to come from a place of when we used to do these make tops manually, putting that half bull on a sink cutout was a huge amount of work. With CNC equipment, like, like you just said, it's it, it's almost nothing in terms of cost, but it's something we can certainly offer. And if we know how to how to structure the sale, if we know how to train our salespeople, then it's it's something we can easily get some additional money for. Absolutely, you, you know, the, I, I think sometimes a lot of, and I, I'm really really impressed with our industry because there are so many what I would consider to be craftsmen turn business people. And that's not easy to do. So I, 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 I give our industry a lot of credit. But if you don't sell those upgrades, it's really hard to make money. Probably about 10 years ago, the Natural Stone Institute, formerly the MIA, did a study. And I think the average fabricator who responded was making about 5% EBITDA or 5% earnings, which I'm going to tell you is just not enough, right? Absolutely. Um, and so you have to figure out ways to make more money. And, you know, one of them is charging more and reducing expenses. That's sure. But one of them is adding to the ticket sales. I, I use this example all the time. Think of a movie theater. OK, and think of the upgrades as the popcorn, the candy and the soda. So in a movie theater, tickets, the sales of tickets make up 80 percent of the revenue and contribute about 60 percent of the profit. OK. But Ed, as soon as you hand your ticket to the attendant and you walk in, what's the first thing you see? You see this massive concession stand, right? And you're going to go and you're going to pay you know, $18 for a small Diet Coke and $39 for a large popcorn. And you pay it with a smile on your face because it's about the experience. And while those concessions actually only make up 20% of the revenue, they're contributing 40% to the bottom line. A movie theater really would not be able to financially survive if they were just selling the tickets. And so I asked fabricators, you know, can you really grow your business and create wealth if you're just selling basic countertops? Absolutely. You, you've been in a lot of different shops. You've worked with a lot of shop owners. You mentioned the 5% net earnings, you know, from the from the previous survey for shops who are really embracing this concept of of selling upgrades and and really have gotten you know really, really bought into this and are executing well with it what's a general impact on on profitability what's that five percent net go to if they do this well well that's it that's an awesome question so i'll give you i'll give you a case study um and i'll do it on my company in chicago so last year um we sold 1.6 million dollars in hot sauce in upgrades Okay. Now, what's interesting about our process is that we let all of our customer-facing employees sell. 
So what, yes, of course, that's salespeople, but the predominant number of our upgrades are actually coming from our field measurers and from our customer service team, primarily because as humans, we repel salespeople. And I can say that because I'm a sales guy. I'm wearing my sales hat right now. But think about it. You know, you go in over the weekend, you want to go into a furniture store, the, you walk in the doors, a salesperson descends on you and your first reaction is, hey, I'm just looking, buddy, just looking, right? And so when you have people that are unassuming and not in a traditional sales role, customers let their guard down. We call that opening up their wallet. And so uh, in 2022, we sold $1.6 million in upgrades. We paid 10% of that back to the people that sold. So we sold we paid $160,000 in commissions to our field measures and our customer service staff, which is amazing because that's typically a group of employees that don't have that ability to earn those that kind of money. We paid about $320,000 back to accounts, meaning that we engage our customers, whether it's the box stores, the kitchen and bath dealers, the custom builders, to uh, partake in this program. And then we give them commissions back. And then maybe 10% of that was uh, for cost of goods for some of the items, whether we're buying a sink or whether we're buying supports. So of that $1.6 million, we profited about $960,000. So real, here's the question. If you're, let's just say that anybody listening to this podcast is actually at a 10% EBITDA business. If you wanted to generate that $960,000, you'd have to generate $9.6 million in additional business. Additional customers, purchasing, fabrication, installation. Just think about that for a minute. Now, that's kind of a, that's a big picture. If we look at a very specific individual job, let's look at a 45 square foot job for a retail customer. I think all fabricators would agree that if they could get their cost of materials to be 33%, they'd be a static, right? And that'd be amazing. Yep. So, and let's say this fabricator for this 45 square foot job has a slab that costs them $600. So you could argue it's just an eased edge, drop-in sink, couple rectangle pieces. We could sell that job for 1800 bucks, right? Because our cost of goods is 600 bucks. We make 33% uh, cost of goods, 10% profit, let's assume. If we made 180 bucks on that job. Now let's go back and let's add a chip minimizer to it, which we're going to charge $250. We're going to pay $25 to the person that sold it within the company. There's no cost of goods. Our profit's $225. We made more money on the upgrade than we did on the actual countertop. Now, you can't sell the upgrade by itself. You can't just sell somebody a chip minimizer. You need the countertop. But boy, if we're just selling countertops, we're not making enough money. And that example is just with a chip minimizer. Correct. There are some other things we can add to that sale too, right? Yeah. I mean, we we actually built the software that we use. We've got about 250 items in that list. We certainly don't recommend everybody using all those, but you know, you start thinking about waterfall panels. That's a that's a that's a great example. Somebody comes into your showroom, they've got their cabinet drawings on a napkin, and they say, Hey, can you quote this for me? We go ahead and quote it for them. It's a three thousand dollar job. Great. Now imagine if the field measure goes out to measure again. They're not a salesperson. They're non-threatening. They're coming in with their laser or their tape measure and a and some you know a, a, a pad of paper. And all of a sudden they say, "Hey, you know it'd be great. What if we added these waterfall panels? Let me show you what that looks like." And they start showing them some pictures. And here's what the cost looks like. And our software provides all that. All of a sudden the customer's like, "Absolutely," because their wallet is open. They don't feel threatened. And this is an investment. You know, countertops are a want. There are needs and wants in this world, right? 
needs, food, water, air, clothing, shelter. Countertops is a want. And so if somebody's going to go spend their hard-earned money, they want to make sure they're getting everything that they want. And if you can sell them the upgrades, you're going to eliminate this phenomenon called reverse buyer's remorse, right? And that is where a customer buys something from a fabricator or anybody, but if we're talking about countertops, six days, six weeks, six months later, they go into somebody else's home and they go, I wish I would have done that edge profile, but my fabricator didn't even show it to me. Yep. Right? That was a missed opportunity for selling. Wow. I got my head spinning with lots of different numbers and 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 lots of opportunity here. Part of what I'm thinking through is kind of the old, old it's like uh, when you walk into a dealership and you take, you, you bought your car, you take your car in for service later on. You know, if you're talking to the mechanic, that's that unassuming non-salesperson, but viewed as kind of an expert, just like your measure tech is or your tippler. Um, those are the folks who can have some, some interesting conversations with customers or prospective customers and really drive a lot of these upsells. You are exactly correct. And, thinking, you know, go ahead. Sorry. And I'm thinking, too, another another comparison is uh, in the, the copy machine business. You don't have as much copy machine business these days as we did maybe 10, 20 years ago. But one of the, the largest um, drivers for copier upgrade sales of copier upgrades was the service tech who came out and did the servicing in the office. They'd get to talking to the, the people who use the copier start uh, answering questions they had about what was good and what wasn't. And all of a sudden the company wants to upgrade their copier because the service tech has made a sale, not a salesperson that showed up. You are exactly correct. You've course, got I'm, it. I'm showing my age with that one a little bit too, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, me too, because I understand what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I'm thinking about is I, you know, we talked about salespeople in this industry uh, to a large extent are, are a lot of times are order takers uh, and we really need to upgrade our sales capability. What are some of the things that, that you've seen be effective to help get salespeople to adapt this, this approach in addition to the additional uh, commission structure that goes with this? What are some other ways that a, a shop owner could help make this happen? I think with any type of you know, program that an owner or a manager wants to see, you have to give your team the appropriate resources. And, and what I mean by that is you can't sit your team down and say, I need you all to sell more upgrades, go get them, give them a rah-rah speech, and then walk away without any type of suitable references and resources and abilities. And, and so for us, anytime we respect, we inspect something, our team respects it. And what I mean by that is if we're going to go ahead and put together a new program for anything within our business, whether it's an incentive for our fabricators, one for our installers, or in this case, anybody that is customer facing, you've got to make sure that you explain what, what right looks like, show them what right looks like, and then give them the ability to see the results on a routine basis. Because there have been many times, even in my own company, where we've put together a program, we've rolled it out, everybody's really excited. And three months later, I'm like, hey, how's that program working? I'm like, yeah, we're not doing it anymore. And that was a failure on my part because we did not share the results with everybody. We did not share the wins. We didn't show the opportunities. We didn't show where we needed some more work. Um, and so I think that's really important. Again, for us, we created a software system to make it really easy for everybody to not only see everything that's available and show the prices, 
but also they can see how they're doing and compare that to their peers. You know, peer ranking is really is really a powerful tool. I used to be in the pharmacy business and we had 55 pharmacies. And every month, talk about dating yourself, every month we would send out a physical newsletter. And on the back of it, I ranked all of the pharmacies in terms of their EBITDA percentage. And so if you were number 55 or even 54 on that list and you got that report emailed out to all your peers, I promise you, you were calling me the next day saying, Jeff, I need help. Right? Yep. So. Yeah. The, you start talking about metrics, feedback, setting expectations, uh, you know, making successes visible, uh, all those different concepts. Those are really, to me, key components of, of not just good management, but also strong leadership. And we were talking a little earlier about how this is a really young industry that has done a, an awesome job the last 20 years or so of coming up the curve. Um, one of the ways I think that, that our industry still can, can learn and grow is by improving general management ability and, and leadership techniques. And I think what you just showed us is a good example of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, I spend about 50% of my time building culture in my company, right? I'm, very lucky. We um, have about 260 employees and we've got 15 managers, senior managers that have been with us for an average of about 13 years. And that team really knows what to do. But my job is to make sure that I'm supporting them and giving them everything that they need. And we are always about forward progress and progress and change isn't always easy. But if you give your staff all the resources, right, they will do some amazing things and, you know, they will no pun intended, but they'll move mountains for you. You're talking about obviously working on your business and with a large organization, not only do you have typically the time to some extent to do that because you're not having to go out and template or sell or do, do you know, work as a, as a worker in your business, um, but you're also, it's an essential part of a business that size. You know, I work with a lot of smaller shops, and one of the questions I get a lot is, you know, they'll they'll look at at a company like the Countertop Factory that's you know really large, really successful. I'm talking to a guy that's got a million, two to million dollar a year shop, and they say, you know, what do I need to do to get to that level? And, and of course, I've got my answers, but I'm curious if if that that shop owner were to ask you that question, what are some of the things you might share with them that they want to think about doing a little bit differently? So I get that question asked a lot. Um, I'm engaged with a lot of the different organizations, whether it's Stone Fabricators Alliance, All Slab Fabrics, Rockheads, Artisan Group, ISFA. And so I get to meet wonderful people from all different size companies. And, and so that that question gets, gets a position to me a lot. And here's what I would say. It's different for everybody, right? There are going to be some small companies that invested heavily in technology. Right, where maybe they they went out early and got a water jet or they got a CNC. There's other smaller companies that are still using a blue ripper and still using you know Luon strips or cardboard a template, but their next step is maybe moving to an ERP system. So the reality of it is you have to start with what do you want to be when you grow up, right? There are plenty of companies that are really good at a million to two million in revenue and they're incredibly happy and successful doing that. Right. And, and maybe are, are overachieving in terms of some of those EBITDA. But there's plenty of companies that say, listen, I'm one to two million today and I want to be 10 million. And here's what that looks like. At that point, there's a lot there. There's a, a much straighter line to get there, to get to that progression. Right. And one of them is you have to be able to relinquish some of the control. And that's hard for owners. Right. 
as entrepreneurs, right, we're putting in a lot of time and energy and we're the ones that have the vision. But at some point, you have to be able to let go. And so instead of saying, hey, look, I'm going to go template all those jobs. It's like, all right, when we're going to go from one million to three million, I'm going to go hire a templater. And hey, but maybe I'm going to give them the opportunity to sell upgrades because, hey, that's going to help my bottom line. It's also going to allow me not to have to, you know, I can, I'll be able to pay them a great wage. They'll get excited about it. You have to take some more risks if you want to get to that next level. But every fabricator is going to be slightly different in terms of that pathway. The the pathway will be different, but I think um, sounds like from what you said, uh, the real key is set a goal, know where you want to go. And then right. you put together that plan. That plan will vary based on where you are, where you want to get to. Um, but it it really comes down to finding ways to work on your business, finding ways to improve how you do what you do. Delegation is a big part of that. You would talk about leadership and management. And one of the things I recommend folks do is, is we, we talk about ways to just, how do you carve out an hour a week on a regular basis? And then what are you going to put that hour? What do you, how are you going to invest that hour in your business? Are you going to start researching, uh, you know, putting in which, which software you're going to move to, or you're researching uh, whether you're going to, you know, move from a blue ripper to a saw jet, you know, well, what is that for? Are you going to try to figure out how to train that templar that you need to hire? I think uh, one of the really key things that our industry has got to figure out is is how to grow our own, so to speak. You know, going out and 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 poaching experienced people from another shop, as I'm sure you know really well, isn't always a successful strategy. You bring people in that may bring a whole lot of bad habits. You got to figure out how to undo so they can do things the way you want them to. And you know, a lot of times you're better off going out and getting somebody with no experience, train them like you want them to to do do the job. And we got to figure out how to do that in this industry as, as companies. And I think that's a that's a big opportunity for us. Yeah, you you are spot on with that. That's actually one of our hiring strategies is, is really to find people fresh, not from our industry. But, you know, hope is not a strategy. And, <laughs> I love and, it. <laughs> and, you know, we talk about this planning process. We actually do this thing called the predetermined profit planning. We call it for short the PDP. And right about this time every year, we actually go off-site so nobody can bother us for a couple of days, and we'll bring in key, key people throughout those three days. And we will literally go through every part of our PL, and it always starts with sales. What does our sales projection look like? And we're going to go through it by customer. We're going to do it by sales rep. We're going to look at the past history of the last three years, right? What does that look like going forward? And then it's like, all right, well, if this is our sales plan then for next year, what are the resources that we need to maximize that plan? Right. If you're going to grow by 15 percent, you don't want to necessarily grow your talent by 20 percent. Right. You, but there has to be some growth in those employees. And then you start working it all the way down. And when you're all done, you're going to have this EBITDA number. And if it's not where you want it to be, then you go back and you figure out, all right, well, were we too conservative on our sales? Is there another market that we can go into? Or, hey, were we too aggressive on adding new employees? Maybe we can add less employees but we're going to have to add some more technology or capital equipment. And you start massaging that. So at the end of it, you have a roadmap and then you hold everybody accountable to that roadmap. Unfortunately, and that this isn't just our industry, but too many small business owners really don't have a good grasp of the financial aspect of their business. And so when I talk to them and I say, Hey, how's your business doing? It's like, well, I don't know. I'm going to get my reports from my CPA next month. <laughs> and I cringe when I hear that because as a business owner, you should be in your financials all the time. You should know what's happening. Yep. Right. 
Um, you know, we subscribe to a process, lean manufacturing process, right? Called synchronous solutions, synchronous flow. Yep. And it allows us to know every day how we're doing, how much profit. And we're, we're accurate within a half a percentage point. So on the last day, throughout the, throughout the month, I know how we're doing. And at the end of the month, I pretty much know what our financial is going to look like. It's amazing. And uh, I used to be the guy that would cross my fingers and go, I hope we made money this month. <laughs> but that was many moons ago. And it's much easier uh, to know how much money you're making. And you can make the right corrections and adjustments as needed. And using metrics like throughput and operating expense, you can find, you can know, did we win the day yesterday? Why or why not? You can sit down in the middle of the month and look at what you've already got scheduled for the rest of the month and say, do we have a plan for October to make a profit? And why or why not? And now that we're looking ahead instead of looking behind, we have time to, to adjust that if we need to. So I think those are phenomenal. Those are just excellent management accounting metrics. I've run manufacturing plants and other in this industry and others. And waiting to the 10th of the month to get your P&L for the previous month to try to figure out what kind of changes I make this month to improve the business when I can't remember what I had for lunch last week, much less all I know is I work really hard in September to make you know make those numbers look good. Got to October, they don't look good. And then I make changes in October. Well, I get my P&L in November for October, but it's only part of a month of change. So I got to get my P&L in December for November to look at the changes I made in October based on data and set. <laughs> You're driving <laughs> while looking in the rearview mirror. And this, this daily feedback, I think, is just absolutely essential for effectively managing and running a business and then having the ability to look forward and say, okay, how much profit did we plan? Do we plan to make next Thursday? Exactly. Right. Got the day scheduled, we can figure that out, you know. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, that and and then driving it into the annual planning process you're talking about, I think, is a huge, huge step forward for a lot of a lot of fab shop owners. Yeah, and what's really interesting is if you start tracking the job in terms of how much profitability they'll add to your bottom line, right? In terms of let's say, for example, throughput dollars. Now you start realizing. That boy, if I had that same job, but I sold an upgraded edge profile or a waterfall panel or steel supports or any of the other upgrades that are available, you watch the throughput dollars go through the roof. And what's amazing when you're selling upgrades is that you don't have to add any more people or benefits. You don't have to add any more warehouse space. You don't have to buy any new machinery or capital equipment. In fact, hey, you don't even have to get any new customers. You're just selling more to your existing customer, right? Get yep. that customer, hold them, squeeze them, kiss them, never let them go. Sell everything you can to them within reason that fits within their framework of what they need. Certainly. Yep. There's always lots of opportunity. Um, you've got a program called Hot Sauce that helps folks do this. How can, how can fabricators learn more about that? So the simple and easy way to do it is go to our website, hotsauceyourtops.com. Uh, there's some great information on there. Click on the link for a demo, choose the date, and then uh, somebody will reach out and we'll do a live demo. And we typically get people selling within a week. It's pretty impactful. That That's awesome. I think having a, a piece of technology to help enable this type of behavior, I think is a real big key to, to improving behavior and, and getting sales behavior at all levels of the company where you need it to be. So you make a lot more money. Absolutely. No question. And look, incentivizing your employees, employees are the number one asset that you have, right? We can't continue to keep raising rates to employees without raising our rates at some point 
to a level where customers are going to stop buying, right? It's kind of this gentle balance that we have. But give your employees an opportunity to sell these very lucrative upgrades. It gives them an opportunity to make more money. Everybody wins. Absolutely. And what's interesting, and we talk about a lot of concepts in not just in this industry, but in business in general, there's usually upsides and downsides. When we look at upselling the way we've talked about it today, it, I struggle to find any real significant downsides to taking this approach, no matter how you do it. That's why we call it upselling and not downselling, right? There's only upside. <laughs> it's only you're upside. Exactly, you're you're exactly right. And, and listen, it, it's a consultative approach, right? So if the customer says, hey, I'm not interested, great. No harm, no foul. Yep, definitely. Any closing thoughts? You know, uh, like you, I'm really an, I'm enamored by this industry. Um, I really try to do everything I can to make sure that the the business owners in this in this scope of work, what we're trying to do is trying to make as much money as possible. I, I do have one kind of public service announcement. Um, for those of us that have been closely following what's going on with OSHA and with Silica, my my ask and request is that if you are not following those guidelines and making sure that you are, you know, reducing the silica content in your air, please do so immediately because, you know, OSHA was mounting kind of their, uh, maybe attack isn't the right word, but they were going to be visiting shops uh, in large numbers pre-COVID. We all know what happened, but that's going to start happening again. And if you follow anything that's going on in California, it's hot and heavy over there. So just, you know, be safe out there. Absolutely. And and I don't want to get off on, on a rapid trail on, on safety, but I think this is the beginning of a big safety push in this industry, because as you know, coming from other industries, where we are with safety is is not really where a lot of other industries are. And there are lots of things. And I mean, silica is huge. No question about that. Um, but there are there are lots of other safety issues that I think our, our shop owners need to be aware of. Um that are going to come out of this whole initiative as well. So it's time yes, to start sir. thinking about what that looks like and getting ready for it. Love it. Jeffrey, really do appreciate you joining us today. I think uh, learning more about the art of upselling is, is going to be a great benefit to folks who listen to this and not just listen to it, but actually do something with it because that's where the rubber meets the road. It's where you get the results. But uh, thanks also for all you do for ESFA and for the industry in general. Uh, and for those of you who are listening to this podcast, thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for your membership in ISFA. You can check out other episodes at isfanow.org. And until next time, happy fabricating. Thanks for listening. To hear more in-depth viewpoints, gain actionable insights and powerful tools to help you succeed, Subscribe to the Behind the Surface podcast presented by the International Surface Fabricators Association. To learn more about ISFA, visit our website at www.isfanow.org.